CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Warning, the Josh Hammer Show is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Paving a path forward for the new right. If you are a conservative, if you are a religious person, if you are a traditionalist, frankly, if you just love this country, fight back. And exposing the woke left. What is this identity politics drill? Why is the right playing into that? The only way out is through. This is the Josh Hammer Show. We have a very different show for you today. We are bringing on Judge Amul Thapar of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit to talk about his new book, The People's Justice, which is a book about the, the great justice, Clarence Thomas. Pretty rare opportunity to get to chat directly with a federal judge. I, I, I'm fortunate enough to have clerked for one federal judge, Jim Ho, on the Fifth Circuit myself, and I, I, I know a number of judges myself, but it's fairly rare to get a judge on, on a podcast or a program of this nature. So really looking forward to kind of unpacking this new book that just came out a couple of weeks ago from Judge the Par. And it, the timing for this could not have been better. I mean, those of you who listened to the last episode, you heard that the way the U.S. Supreme Court term ended was a wonderful, wonderful ending for originalists, for the conservative legal movement. Clarence Thomas himself had this amazing, amazing concurrence in the affirmative action case, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard. I suspect that Judge Thapar and I are going to get into that there. But there really is only one institution in America right now that I can think of at the national level that leans right of center. I mean, you might quibble that the U.S. House does under Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. It's a very narrow majority. But the Supreme Court, as currently comprised, it's not not a far-right court, it's not, but it it is a right-of-center court. And there is no leading intellect of the court's conservative bloc quite like Justice Clarence Thomas. So really excited to dive in on his jurisprudence with Judge Amulitha Parr, which we'll get right into right after this. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Josh Hammer Show. 
So we have a special treat for you today. We have the first sitting federal judge to join the Josh Hammer Show. I'm talking here, of course, about the Honorable Judge Amulthapar of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit and the author of the recently released book, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him, available now everywhere from Regnery Gateway. So Judge Thapar, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. For the listeners, Judge Thapar and I have gotten to know each other over the past few years. Really been a big fan of of, of a lot of your works. So this is a real treat for me. So, Judge, I, we're going to get into some of these specific cases because the, the book is basically kind of organized around certain cases and opinions that Justice Thomas has written. But I guess there's one question kind of at the outset for you. I'm kind of just curious how you came around to writing a book on a sitting justice in the first place. It's a somewhat unusual thing for a sitting federal appeals judge to do. I mean, there's nothing obviously wrong with it. I have repeatedly referred to Clarence Thomas as the greatest living American, and I, I stand by those words adamantly. The judge that I myself clerked for, uh, Judge Jim Ho in the Fifth Circuit, is, of course, a Clarence Thomas alum, and I count many Clarence Thomas clerks as friends, so I'm such a great admirer of his. But I, I'm curious how you specifically came around to actually writing this book. Yeah, so my first goal was to write a book on originalism for lay people. And then it morphed. And as you know, Josh, from being a writer yourself, you start drafts, you throw them out, you say, ah, this isn't going to be interesting. People won't read it. I want the lay person to read it. How am I going to do this? And the one thing I realized in going through that process is that Justice Thomas really captures some things that are often not talked about. And most importantly to me, he really captures what originalism is all about and how it impacts ordinary people. And he never forgets the real people in front of him. And I saw that throughout his jurisprudence pretty consistently. And to me, it was never reported. And it a lot of those cases would rebut the criticisms, what I think are unfair criticisms of originalism. So really, when people read the book, they're going to see first and foremost that the real heroes of the cases are the lawyers and the litigants. And Justice Thomas is the protagonist of originalism, but his brand is so unique in many ways. And no one had seemed to capture that. And I thought this was an opportunity to do so. And I'm sure we'll get into that. But he not only is a predominant, uh, the leading originalist in the country, I think no one would debate that on either side. But he's also someone that cares passionately about people, both personally, and then it shines through in his jurisprudence, hence the name. Right. Absolutely. I mean, just some of my favorite kind of anecdotal stories. So uh, I, I have not clerked on the Supreme Court myself, I've clerked on Fifth Circuit, but I've you know had any number of friends who have clerked on the high court. And basically everyone without fail says the same thing, which is that it is specifically Justice Thomas and not any of the other eight justices who is the most universally liked person in the entire building, whether it's the janitorial staff, whether it's the people in the cafeteria, everyone just loves hanging out with Justice Thomas. And, you know, he famously has done, you know, many road trips over the summer when the court is off session in, in his RV just to kind of see America. I mean, he really is kind of a, this man of the people that you are describing him as. But, you know, let's dive in here in, in terms of the Constitution and actual substance. He is really by far 
the leading originalist. There is very little doubt about that in, in my mind. I, I would have said the same thing, actually, when the late great Justice Scalia himself even was on the court. I, I always thought that Clarence Thomas really just defined what it meant to be an originalist. So the book, again, is organized by specific cases. And we kind of see his originalism play out there. And, you know, I'm kind of just going to pick a place to dive in here. And how can I not start, I guess, with affirmative action and race conscious admissions policies and really just the use of race consciousness in general in the aftermath of the Students for Fair Admissions uh, litigation that just completed at the Supreme Court. And you do have a chapter here on the University of Michigan case, Grutter versus Bollinger from 2003. I mean, that seems like a very fitting place to start our conversation, Judge. What what stands out to you when it comes to Clarence Thomas's thoughts on the Venn diagram overlap of race and constitutional theory? Yeah, I mean, so that's such a good insight. And one of the, the first thing I want to say is Justice Thomas, just as a summary throughout his career, he's been very consistent in believing that affirmative action is what I'll call an unconstitutional Band-Aid on a much bigger problem. And so I heard a statistic. I don't know if it's true, Josh. You may know that with Harvard's affirmative action um, program, apparently there's what I understand is an undisputed statistic that six percent of the people benefited were in the lower 50% of income in America. And if you take the book and chapters two and three together, chapter two is really the story of the vouchers case. And chapter three is the story of affirmative action. And you see firsthand what Justice Thomas is championing. In other words, he recognizes the problems that universities have with getting top minority talent to the school. And the problem is a much more fundamental one than what's occurring at the universities. For Justice Thomas, it's the failing public schools in inner cities and Appalachia and elsewhere for all races, frankly, that don't give kids an opportunity to succeed. So that's problem number one for him. Problem number two for him is an expectations problem. He really, and the book demonstrates some real heroes like Kathy McKee and Warwick Dunn, who happen to be black and dealing with the hardest circumstances imaginable, overcoming those circumstances. And Justice Thomas, I think, as his opinions make clear, believes fundamentally that if you set the bar, and he talks about this in Grutter, this, the soft bigotry of low expectations, to quote him. And he just says, look, whatever we set for kids, because after all, these are all kids. The bar we set for kids is what they'll achieve. And in his mind, it's racist and a violation of the Equal Protection Clause to set the bar lower for blacks than for others. That in and of itself is racist. The third point, and I think the critics have proved this true recently, is the stigma that comes with affirmative action. In other words, they they will say Justice Thomas benefited from affirmative action, and that's his whole point. How do we know? He was ninth in his class. He grew up dirt poor. He was raised by his grandfather because his mother couldn't afford to raise him and his brother. And so, I mean, if you look at his personal circumstances, you set his race aside, and he's ninth at Holy Cross, a pretty elite institution, I would say, in the whole college. Um, how do we know affirmative action benefited him? And that's another problem he has with the program is it stigmatizes blacks and minorities and it never does for whites and Asians. And he thinks that that's unfair. So I think you can look at it multiple ways. But at the end of the day, 
maybe first and fundamentally, as he so eloquently has pointed out throughout his career, the Constitution's colorblind. He believes what Justice Harlan said in the Plessy dissent. And he has believed that throughout his career, and he's been consistent about it. Well, he's been adamantly consistent on it. I mean, I think back to his case, I believe the year was 1995, Adirond versus Pena, which was one of his first kind of higher profile writings on whether race consciousness, generally speaking, is compatible with the colorblind ideals of the 14th Amendment and and various other constitutional dictates. And I think back to his, you know, just released 55 to 60 page concurrence in the in the Students for Fair admissions case. I, I, I mean, obviously, the, your book was published before that case came out. I mean, how vindicated do you think Justice Thomas feels now? This, the, the, there has to be some sense, I think, of satisfaction. I mean, this is this is just this is an issue that I think has been so near and dear to him over the past few decades. You think, right? Yes, I absolutely think he feels vindicated. And remember, people say, you know, some of the criticisms are that he's a traitor to his race and that he's an Uncle Tom. And yet the opposite is true, and the book proves it, and the stories in the book prove it. But I think one of the things we should pay attention to is throughout these decisions, what's the one instance, institution he's constantly championed? Historically black colleges. And in fact, right. he includes some startling statistics in his most recent opinion that historically black colleges have produced 40% of all black engineers, 80% of all black judges, 50% of all black doctors and 50 percent of all black lawyers. And you hear others complaining, well, if they can't get into Harvard, how are we going to have black doctors that are going to serve the black community? Well, I mean, he's got a response to that, which is, you know what? 50 percent of them come from historically black colleges. Here's the other thing. Xavier, a historically black college, not the Xavier in Cincinnati, but the other Xavier has had more success moving low income students into the middle class than Harvard has. And the final point, and if I can tell a little story that's included in the book, and I'll give you a snippet, there's a case called Tom, Tompkins versus Alabama State that's in the background of the Grutter chapter. And in that case, uh, Jesse Tompkins, who's a black student, was going to historically black Alabama State and wanted to get a was trying to get a master's degree. His scholarship was taken away because the district court ruled that Alabama State had to diversify. And in doing so, they had to provide scholarships to whites. So the, the plaintiffs referred to it as a whites only scholarship program. Now, what I would ask you, Josh, is where are all the reports on that, that we had a and this whites only scholarship program? And that was upheld. Wow. And so Jesse Tompkins lost his scholarship because of his race. And no one, I mean, I couldn't find much media on that, but I would tell you that that to me is shocking. What did Justice Thomas warn about in Grutter? He said two things. One, stop assuming blacks need someone of a different race sitting next to them to get a high quality education, because the historically black colleges proved that's not true. And second, under the seeds of affirmative action, the, the justifications of it could also, he feared, lead to segregation. And I mean, these types of things are proof of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I mean, that is a wonderful, wonderful anecdote there. So, you know, let's let's stay for now in the theme of of the 14th Amendment, which which, of course, was the basis for the holding just recently in these students for fair emissions cases and affirmative action. And you have a chapter in the book here on what is 
quite possibly my single favorite Clarence Thomas writing of all time, although that might have been surpassed by the by the recent affirmative action writing, which is his concurrence in McDonald versus City of Chicago, which is a Second Amendment case in 2010. It is the case that incorporated, so to speak, the D.C. versus Heller Second Amendment right. So Heller in 2008 establishes, shockingly took so long, it establishes for the first time in American history that, that the Second Amendment means what it says, that you have an individual right to keep and bear arms two years later in the McDonald case. They incorporated, so it applies against the states as well. And Clarence Thomas has this really just amazing concurrence. Getting back into 14th Amendment theory, and your, your chapter discusses the lawyer at the case, Alan Gura, who argued, who argued both those cases, actually, Heller and McDonald, and gets into kind of whether incorporation is, is proper under the due process clause, as the court had been doing it. But Clarence Thomas explains that, no, it's actually the privileges or immunities clause. And Judge, one thing that kind of comes to mind when I think back to this case is I remember, I think it was actually Alan Gura who was arguing, it, and, and Justice Scalia responded to him. And I don't remember the exact line that Justice Scalia said, but he basically kind of scoffed at the notion that they would rethink the way that they are incorporating these these Bill of Rights, individual protections, and which clause they would use. And I think Clarence Thomas really went out on a limb there, at least by himself, with the privileges or immunities clause. So what does that say, I guess, about how much Clarence Thomas is willing to rethink flawed doctrines? And that kind of gets us also into his views on stare decisis as well. Yeah, I mean, I think as the quote unquote Scalia used to say, and I think Justice Scalia was being being unfairly derogatory of himself, but he would say, uh, I'm a faint hearted originalist, basically. Clarence is the real deal. Right. And this case is one indication where Justice Scalia's belief in stare decisis kept him, even though he was maybe at one point the leading critic of substantive due process, the notion of substantive due process, um, kept him in the majority here. And what I call four one four decision where Justice Thomas provides the deciding vote, but does not agree with the majority's rationales you just laid out. And maybe it's worth, if I can, Josh, just taking a step back, because I think the people in front of the court are actually one of Justice Thomas's great assets yep. is he recognizes there's real people. In other words, as when I was a district judge every day, I'd look real people in the eye and you never forget there's real people as the, you go up the court system. And, you know, from clerking cases become captions and we don't really understand and appreciate the real people. But Justice Thomas does. And a lot of people that want to criticize this McDonald decision won't grapple with the facts. And I think the facts are really important to set, you know, because everyone wants to say, oh, this is extreme. The Second Amendment right. These constitutional rights are extreme that the court's enforcing. But the reality is, is when you look at who Otis McDonald was, here's a guy who moves up from New Orleans to Chicago to secure a better life for himself. He moves up there at 14 and ultimately enlists in the military and serves his country and comes back to Chicago on the GI Bill and gets works as a janitor while he goes to school at night, gets a degree, makes a better life for him and his family, his wife and three kids, moves them to the suburbs, Morgan Park, which is a suburb of the south side of Chicago. And while there, suffers six different crimes. And the book recounts this and the drama that went around it. And I won't go into the details other than to say he tried many mechanisms to protect his family, including putting bars on the window, getting an alarm system, participating in a community group that cooperated with police, becoming the head of the community group. And what finally broke 
the straw that broke the camel's back for him was when a neighbor discovered someone hiding in his garage under a car. What I call an eagle eyed neighbor luckily called the police. But for Otis, he knew if he had to pick up the phone and call 911 when someone was in his house, it could possibly be too late for him and his family. So Otis McDonald, the grandson of slaves, wanted to secure his Second Amendment rights so he could protect his family and have a pistol at his bedside. And Chicago said no. And so he enlisted the Second Amendment Foundation, as you just noted. They then got him in touch with Alan Gura. And Alan had the Heller case going on at the time, which was the case that said that the Second Amendment means what it says and applies in the District of Columbia. But that's a federal locality. So you need the 14th Amendment. And this is where the interesting thing is. Most of the constitutional rights of the Bill of Rights have been incorporated through substantive due process, with which Justice Scalia and others have said is a made up thing. Like due process is procedural, not substantive. And Justice Scalia has some great lines about this. But when it came time, Justice Scalia felt I think he used something like that's something to be debated in the professoriate and water under the bridge or something like that in response to Mr. Gura's argument at the Supreme Court. But Justice Thomas, as the originalist he was, went back and has this great concurrence that I document in the book. And I quote him at times because I think it's so important to capture what he was talking about. But he goes through the slaughterhouse cases and how, and I'm not going to get into those right now. They, you can read the book or go read the cases. But the privilege, the privileges or immunities clause was the way in Justice Thomas's mind that the founders, the ratifiers and the people who wrote the 14th Amendment intended the Bill of Rights. And basically, if they were a privilege or immunity of citizenship to be incorporated. And he talks about and he often quotes Frederick Douglass and you've picked two chapters where he does. But he talks about the black codes at the time after the Civil War, where the South and other areas of the country were were taking guns away from blacks and passing black codes to, among other things, deprive blacks of their right to bear arms. And he goes through this history, this pretty abhorrent history. No one talks about this. And he talks about the notable slave uprisings and the things that happened and that a hundred and there were systemic efforts in the old Confederacy. And I'm quoting him to disarm more than one hundred and eighty thousand freedmen who had served in the Union Army, as well as other freed blacks. And then he points to what Frederick Douglass said and said, the only way we're ever going to truly have equality in this country is if blacks have a right to possess and bear arms on equal footing. And so what happens is, and Otis McDonald is this great figure, and in the book, I think people who read it will really enjoy who Otis was. He's a studious man. He's a hard worker. He kind of, in some sense, lives the American dream as well and brings his family out of you know abject poverty. Um, but 144 years after that was passed, it was the grandson of one of those freedmen who had finally vindicated that right for all Americans, but including black Americans. And the justice who told their story was himself the descendant of slaves. So I think all of that really captures how important this was. And Otis McDonald, remember, you know, most people who champion our constitutional rights are held up as heroes. Otis McDonald was ridiculed and he had the courage 
when we talk about courage, we often talk about judges and justices, but really we should think about these litigants like Otis McDonald, who had the courage to stand up and say, protecting my family is more important than what you think about me, and I'm going to vindicate my rights. And he became a student of the Second Amendment himself just so he could protect his family. No, it's wonderful stuff. And, you know, the, again, the the readers can go ahead and and find this full story in Chapter 9 of, of the book. And, you know, after the McDonald versus City of Chicago case came down in 2010, it, it took the court a very long time. It was actually not until last term in the Bruin case out of New York State where they have the votes to hear another Second Amendment case. But over the course of those 12 years, while the lower courts were sorting through the post-Heller, post-McDonald aftermath, Justice Thomas you know, repeatedly lamented in his dissents from denial of cert at the court how the Second Amendment was being treated as a, quote, second-class right and things like that. And I think shining a spotlight there on the litigant in that case, Mr. McDonald, is very, very helpful. So let's take a very quick commercial break. We are here with Judge Amul Thapar of the Sixth Circuit and the author of the just released The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Josh Hammer Show. So, Judge, another substantive area of, of constitutional law that Clarence Thomas has been out on a limb on, although I strongly personally agree with him, has been defamation. And I speak here, of course, about the 1960s era case, New York Times versus Sullivan. And, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of Americans who have gone to law school over the past few decades think of defamation law as something from a bygone era. But the reality is that when America inherited the common law from England at our founding, we inherited the common law of defamation no less than we inherited the common law of torts, contracts, property, or anything else. And it really was not until the Sullivan case in the 1960s that I I would argue radically changed uh, the extent to which defamation law is compatible with with the First Amendment. And here, I'm just going to read a paragraph here from page 103 of your book. You're summarizing what the court held in Sullivan. You write, quote, in New York Times versus Sullivan, the Supreme Court said that public figures can recover for defamation only if they show that the defendant acted with, quote, actual malice. In other words, the plaintiff needed to show the defendant actually knew for a fact that the statement was false or else recklessly disregard that it probably was false. This standard is, quote, almost impossible to meet. And I think back here to my, my first year of law school itself, where we had to write a brief at, at the end of our first year legal writing and, and research class, and it actually involved New York Times versus Solomon and the actual malice standard. So I, I've been fascinated by this debate for many years here. So why don't you walk us through this, this chapter of the book and Clarence Thomas's views specifically on defamation and New York Times versus Sullivan, because, you know, not everyone, even in kind of the originalist leaning camp, I think, agrees with him on this one, although I certainly do myself. 
Yeah. And so this is this is a fascinating case because I think one thing it highlights and we can is Justice Thomas's view that when we get away from the original meaning of the Constitution, we often have unintended consequences for people we don't anticipate. And this chapter is proof of that. It also proves out the title, the people's justice. And I'm going to come back to that. But Kathy McKee is a woman who grew up in Detroit, uh, had dreams of stardom and actually on her own saved up. And this, the chapter recounts how she uh, got to California and ultimately, just to cut to the chase, becomes a star herself. And while she's a star, she's touring with Sammy Davis Jr. And she's back in Detroit and Sammy Davis leaves. And she was supposed to meet up with someone I'm sure your listeners have heard of, Bill Cosby. And she goes, Cosby asked her to bring ribs to the hotel room and she goes over there. Long story short, she claims during that encounter that he raped her, as we know, many women have since claimed. What does Cosby and his lawyers do in response is they launch a campaign to discredit her. Um, not then, but later when she brings this up, when all of the women started to say Bill Cosby had raped them, she too brought it up in response to a reporter who she talked to, I think from the New Yorker, if I remember correctly, although it's in the book. And what happens is Cosby and his lawyers launch a campaign to discredit her. And so she believes they're lying about her and she wants her day in court to clean or to prove that she's telling the truth and Cosby and his lawyers are lying. And the courts say no, because by accusing Bill Cosby of rape, she became what's called a limited public figure under the New York Times v. Sullivan doctrine. And this case gets to the Supreme Court. And at the Supreme Court, they her lawyer made a judgment call not to ask for New York Times v. Sullivan to be overturned, but instead to argue that she wasn't a limited public figure. Well, the court doesn't usually get into factual type disputes as to whether someone fits in a category. But Justice Thomas wrote to explain why New York Times v. Sullivan in his mind was wrong and that the decisions, and I'm quoting him, New York Times and the court's decisions extending it were policy-driven decisions masquerading as constitutional law. And I encourage people to read it because he goes through the history of defamation law and what existed in the states and how it existed both before and after uh, the enactment of the First Amendment and the 14th Amendment, ultimately, and that people weren't allowed to lie about others and get away with it or, you know, be, be reckless in essence. And Justice Thomas says, as he accurately, that it's almost impossible to sh prove these cases, as you noted. And what's so fascinating about it is not only does he go through all this stuff, but then he he's consistent about it. As we talked about in the affirmative action area, it's something he's been talking about for years. But to come back to the point about the people's justice, he, he pointed out how absurd it is two years later in a separate case. And I'm quoting in a different case about a church. They claim they were smeared by the Southern Poverty Law Center and as a result, lost a lot of money, wanted to prove that they wanted to sue the Southern Poverty Law Center. And the court said no. And in that decision, 
I'm sorry, in another decision, because he does this constant, he reminds the court that uh, Sullivan had denied McKee, and I'm quoting from him, defend her reputation in court simply because she accused a powerful man of rape. And I think that line's so important because I think, A, it refutes often when he criticizes the New York Times v. Sullivan, everyone criticizes him. As you said, it's kind of everyone or a lot of people jump on board and they no one grapples with this. All the small businesses, the individuals like Kathy McKee that are harmed and that don't have a right. Remember, just to prove in court that they're telling the truth and the other side's lying about them and smearing them in the media and elsewhere. That's absolutely right. And, you know, we're not going to get into politics, obviously. I've never put you in that situation. But I do remember, I think back to the 2016 Republican primary, where then candidate Donald Trump starts speaking about opening up the libel laws. And, you know, a, a lot of more civil libertarians, I think, kind of reacted with various shrieks of hysteria. But again, we inherited the common law of defamation no less than we inherited any other area of common law, I would argue that our subsequent adaptation of the First Amendment does not make any substantial tweaks to our adoption of common law. I mean, this notion that if you're a public figure or a limited purpose public figure in a, in a specific defamation claim somehow changes the standard from the common law standard to a subjective intent of actual malice. I mean, the whole thing just it really just reeks of 1960s era Warren Court activism. And I, I remember just very fondly reading the, the Cosby writing from Justice Thomas when that came out there. Um, so, Judge Thapar, let's get into one final case here. And it's a case that I talk about sometimes when I kind of go around the Federal Society circuit and do my talk on common good originalism, which is kind of my own take on originalism. And I'm talking here about Gonzalez versus Reich. So this is a case from the 2000s. I think it was 2005, if I have the exact year correctly. And it was Georgetown professor Randy Barnett, who was the litigant in this case. Randy's a, a, a friend of mine and just an all-around mensch, just a good guy. And the reason that I think the the Reich case is, is so interesting is that it's one of the massive Thomas Scalia splits. Now, you know, they've had any number of major splits in the times that they overlapped on the court for roughly 25 years or so, but this was a big one. And they basically divided on the extent to which the federal government via the Commerce Clause and the Necessary and Proper Clause have jurisdiction to regulate one guy growing marijuana in his own backyard somewhere in California, if I have the the, the facts correctly there. So, Curious, just kind of for your take again, and, and I find it interesting again because it is a, a, a Thomas Scalia split and, and a high profile one at that. In fact, if I recall correctly, I think Ilya Shapiro, when when he came to University of Chicago Law School to give a talk on this back when I was a student there, he famously referred to this as Anthony Scalia's drug war loophole to his Commerce Clause jurisprudence. So kind of just curious, Judge, for your take on Gonzalez versus Reich. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. So I used to teach a class called Scalia versus Thomas oh, and wow. it highlighted some of these distinctions. And one of them was this case, because I think race in many ways shows um, two things. One is that Justice Thomas firmly believes that his oath. So Randy Barnett, to quote him, since we brought him up and he's the lawyer in this case, as you know, Josh says, um, that the Constitution, it, we take an oath to this Constitution, meaning government officials, military, others. And Randy says it's the document that governs those who govern us. 
And Justice Thomas, as part of that, firmly believes, I think, as this book proves and demonstrates, that his first and primary obligation is to what he believes the Constitution compels. And there's no exceptions in his mind. And this case proves it because most people, someone else asked me, you know, who would have thought that Justice Thomas, two women here, and it recounts the drama. When when people read the chapter, they're going to see the drama behind what these women were going through and personally how they need in their minds needed medical marijuana. And who would have thought that Justice Thomas would be championing, as one person <laughs> asked me, some pot smoking hippies, so to speak. Now, I know Angel. I've had the, to- the pleasure of talking to her. She's anything but a pot smoking hippie just to defend her character. But she's a wonderful woman that just wanted to keep government, for better or worse, as she viewed it in her own words, out of her medical care. And she wanted a choice as to what was authorized under state law to make a decision to treat herself. And Justice Thomas said, look, someone growing marijuana, just the simpleton version, someone growing marijuana in their backyard, as you said, is not affecting interstate commerce as it was originally understood. Now, his jurisprudence, again, (laughs) dates back to an old case. This isn't he's not a Johnny come lately to any of this. In Lopez, a case about guns in school zones, A criminal case, he ruled in favor of a criminal defendant because he did not think simply possessing a gun in a school zone affected interstate commerce. There had to be a commerce tie. And he's just consistent. And it doesn't matter who the party is. That's the unique thing about him. Justice Scalia used to say, if you always like the result you reach, you're not being a good judge. Justice Thomas is the epitome of that. So why did Justice Scalia depart from him? I actually think, I mean, people say the drug comment, and I think uh, that's a nice, easy way of explaining it. I think the, in my opinion, the better way of explaining it is, again, what he called his faint-hearted originalism, that he was more of a believer in stare decisis. He thought Wickard and its progeny, a case about wheat um, that we can get into if you want, but otherwise people can read the book. But he thought that that, guided him and mandated that he rule in favor of the government there. He was also worried, and this maybe supports the the theme or the statement you you said, and he asked about it at argument, if I recall correctly, like, what's the consequences of this? Can people produce meth in their house? And if the state says it's okay, and what happens when everyone produces their own? Does that affect commerce? And so I think he thought down the slippery slope. The chapter recounts how Randy had answers to all of those questions. But um, interestingly, for people who are law and order, there wasn't Justice Thomas wasn't alone. Uh, this was a 6-3 decision where Rehnquist and O'Connor also signed up were were on that side although i don't think they signed on to his opinion per se right that is my memory of it as well there and you know i'm happy you mentioned clarence thomas's emphasis on the oath of office and the role that that plays with his views on precedent and stare decisis i I had an essay in yuval levin's quarterly publication national affairs in the fall of 2020 I, i kind of snarkily titled that essay quote overrule stare decisis. And I, I basically was looking at Justice Thomas's um, opinion in the 2019 case called Gamble versus the United States, where he laid out in most explicit detail his own theory of stare decisis. And 
you know, a spoiler alert, I basically come to the conclusion that he's right. Um, and Caleb Nelson, the law professor at University of Virginia, who is often cited in that gamble concurrence from CT, is is himself right. Um, so, Judge, just one more question for you before we go here. Um, I want to kind of just zoom out a little bit. We've had we've had two very uh, by any stretch of the imagination, very successful Supreme Court terms in a row from from an originalist perspective. Obviously, last term, there was Dobbs, there was Bruin, there was West Virginia versus EPA, any number of other high profile cases. This term that that just completed, we had the affirmative action. We had 303 Creative out of Colorado and various other instances as well. And, you know, nothing's perfect. There's obviously some things to complain about everywhere you look here. But overall, the trajectory of the past two terms is certainly a relatively good one. I'm curious for your take on the broader state of originalism. And I, I, I say that, of course, as I kind of teased earlier, someone who has been somewhat on the periphery, on the edge of, of trying to kind of challenge some pre-existing orthodoxies within within that camp. Do you think there's any room for kind of this uh, slight intellectual tensions that some of us have started to continue? Or do you think the past two terms has kind of foreclosed some of that? No, I think it's important. One thing I've always maintained, and maybe I'm different than some of my colleagues, is that originalists be open to the criticism and deal with it, because some of the criticisms valid of originalism. No one would dispute that. Even Justice Thomas, I think, would admit that there are valid critiques of originalism, and we need to grapple with them rather than ignore them. I don't think it's fair to ignore them, and I think it's important that people look at it critically and give feedback like you've done and for people to think deeply about those things rather than shoot the messenger. I, I, I just think that's not a good practice, whether the critiques coming from one side or the other. I think it's important. And for so long, originalists have grappled with critiques that have come in the academy and dealt with them, I think, pretty well and responded to them. I think this book is a response to many of those criticisms that you know, originalism favors the rich over the poor, the corporation over the consumer, or the government over the individual. The book proves the opposite's wrong. The stories of the cases prove the opposite's wrong. That's why it's important that your listeners be armed with these stories in this book so they can debate their friends. Not only that, they can give the book to their friends and say, or tell them to get it in a book club and discuss these cases because I think people have a different perspective of originalism. That doesn't make it perfect. Justice Scalia, again, to go back to him, says, it only is it's more perfect than every alternative, but it's or less flawed than every alternative. But it doesn't mean it doesn't have its flaws. And I think it's really important. I think you've done some thoughtful work in this area. As you know, you and I have discussed it. And I think it's important that originalists be open to the critiques and continue to become better. I mean, that's how you become better. And once we shoot messengers, instead of being open to the critiques, well, I think then that's when originalism will die as a philosophy. I do think it's my own personal view, although I don't think anyone that disagrees with me is wrong per se, is that it's compelled by our oath. Uh, it is out of the Randy Barnett school. And but that doesn't mean that the way I think about originalism is always right. The critics, the critiques of it are critical to allowing the doctrine to continue to thrive. And without them, candidly, I think it will die. So I think it's important. I like the way you've approached it um, in making those critiques. And I think others have critiqued originalism. And until originalists grapple with those 
the valid criticisms that come our way and have answers, I, I, I don't think we should shoot messengers. Very well said, Judge. I, I do appreciate it. And just as a very brief point of clarity, I, I do consider myself an originalist. Uh, my theory, I, I call common good originalism for a reason. I, I, I do think that it is a substrand of, of originalism, but, I, but I, I could not have said that any better myself. So thank you for that. So, you know, Judge Thapar, thank you so much for joining us this week. Again, Judge Thapar is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit and the author of the recently released The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas, and the Constitutional Stories that Define Him, now available wherever books are sold. Judge Thapar, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Josh Hammer Show. So once again, if you haven't already done so, you should go ahead and check out Judge Thapar's new book on justice, Clarence Thomas. And, you know, one thing that I found interesting about our conversation is Judge Thapar repeatedly came back to the title of his book, The People's Justice. And we got into this a little bit, probably not enough. We could go into that, I think, a little more. But he chose that title for a reason which is I think a lot of people think of legal conservatives, the conservative legal movement, the constitutional interpretive methodology of originalism as somehow favoring the elites or somehow favoring the ruling class or the administrative state or whatever, as opposed to we the people, as opposed to a slightly more kind of populist theory of, of popular sovereignty, when in reality, from my perspective, and I would imagine from Judge Thapar's perspective, and certainly from Clarence Thomas's perspective, something closely approximating the precise opposite is actually true. That we the people, in order to actually be in control of our own destiny, in order to try to shepherd this wonderful experiment in order liberty from one generation to the next, we have to control our institutions. We have to regain our Article One congressional lawmaking prerogative. We have to tamp down the administrative state. We have to crack down on executive branch actions run amok. We have to crack down on judicial supremacy and judicial activism run amok. And there's any number of other examples there. But, you know, again, I feel somewhat privileged, frankly, to use a word that the left is, is very fond of to not only have clerked for a judge myself, uh, Judge Jim Ho in the Fifth Circuit, who clerked for Clarence Thomas, but to have just so many friends uh, just because of the connections I've made. I don't know how else to say it, um, who have clerked for Clarence Thomas. So I've only met the man once or twice myself, but I do feel like I know him. And without fail, they all say the exact same thing. I mean, what you heard us talk about earlier about kind of the janitors in the Supreme Court building just loving the guy. Clarence Thomas is a famously a huge NASCAR fan. I mean, like the guy is just all American. I mean, he has led the American dream like nothing else. Growing up dirt poor in the Jim Crow South, growing up to be the leading intellect, the leading proponent of constitutional originalism on the modern Supreme Court, probably in the history of the entire Supreme Court. What an icon. 
being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. She's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.